You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 4th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Today we've got a bit of a change from the usual fare. Instead of talking about the potential of energy transition, we're going to return to the subject of oil depletion. We haven't really touched on that topic since way back in episode 13 when we talked with Mason Inman about his biography of M. King Hubbard. In the 1940s, Hubbard created the original model of how world oil production would grow, reach a peak, and then slowly decline, the model now known as Hubbard's Peak, which kicked off the narrative now popularly known as peak oil. We discussed the progression of oil production and the popular treatment of the peak oil story at length in that episode, so we won't be revisiting that today. Instead, we've got a bit of a treat in store for you. In July, I had the good fortune to travel to the village of Ballydehab on the west coast of Ireland to interview Colin Campbell, one of the petroleum geologists who, in 1998, revived interest in Hubbard's work with a cover story in Scientific American titled The End of Cheap Oil. Colin had a fascinating career which included exploring the world for oil starting in the 1950s while working for companies such as Texaco, British Petroleum, Amico, and Petrofina, and who was even involved in some of the very early experiments in fracking. After his retirement, Campbell founded the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, or ASPO, in 2000, and became one of the leading figures in framing the modern theory and data supporting the peak oil theory. I wanted to interview him for a couple of reasons. First, I felt like I owed him a debt of gratitude, for it was through reading the newsletter he published for ASPO from 2001 through 2009 that I first became interested in the topic of peak oil specifically, but also the energy industry in general, which ultimately led me to abandon my career in software in 2003 and enter the field of energy. And second, because I interviewed him just two days before his 88th birthday, and I realized that the window of opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with him wasn't going to stay open forever. And third, because beyond all the oil data and the theory in which so many of us had immersed ourselves, I wanted to get the current perspective of this extraordinary man and what he thinks the future holds for humanity in an age of declining oil supply. Now, long-time listeners will know that I haven't covered the subject of energy scarcity much on this show, preferring instead to highlight both the real progress in energy transition and its future potential. In fact, I've only really covered it in two episodes, episode 13 with Mason Inman and episode 54 when we talked with Bill Reese about resource limitations. But I think it's a perspective worth bearing in mind because, in my view, a future of resource scarcity in general and energy scarcity in specific cannot yet be ruled out even if the whole topic of peak oil is no longer vogue in the popular imagination. 
and it's still worth thinking about what a low-energy world might look like, and I think Collins' outlook, which he calls a return to regionalism, is not just a cautionary tale about what the future may hold for us if we are not successful in energy transition, but it's also, in its own way, sort of an optimistic view of how a low-energy lifestyle might yet offer a reasonably happy life, at least for those who survive the tumult of the next century. In this roughly 90-minute interview which I conducted at his house, we talked about his personal history and career, about the arc of the peak oil narrative and ASPO, and about his vision of the future. And whether you agree with him about everything or not, I hope you will find his views thought-provoking. You might even come to think of oil and gas with a fresh perspective. But before we dive into the interview, let me just take a moment here to thank our latest site licensee, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. We're thrilled that all of the students, faculty, and staff of that fine institution can now enjoy our whole catalog of full episodes. And as always, if you are interested in arranging a site license for your company or academic institution, it's really easy. Just go to our group subscription page at energytransitionshow.com slash group options and give us some basic information. It only takes a minute and we'll get a custom quote off to you right away. Way. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll observe why workers in a bankrupt shipyard in Belfast have seized control of the site and demanded to continue building wind and marine turbines there. We'll take note of the world's latest and largest all-electric ferry. We'll check out a new carbon capture and storage facility that Chevron just started up in Western Australia. And we'll hear some echoes of episode 102 as a bankruptcy judge and insurance companies in California continue to grapple with managing wildfire risk. But first, our conversation with Colin Campbell, recorded in Ballydehob, Ireland, on July 22nd, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Colin, to the Energy Transition Show. Okay. I wonder if I could just kind of quickly revisit where I got interested in your work. Yes. Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that if it were not for your newsletter, of which you published 100 issues, I would never have entered the field of energy, let alone had this podcast. It was your newsletter, which I looked forward to reading each new issue, like a kid looks forward to Christmas, and (laughs) just devoured it as soon as it came out. (laughs) And your work really changed the course of my career, and I suspect that you know, more than a few other people could probably say the same. So first, I just want to thank you for getting me interested in energy and inspiring me to go learn about this stuff. (laughs) That newsletter really had a big impact. Oh, good. What caused you to write that? Well, it's coming after the story I've told you so far. Okay. Yeah, my last years in Norway, I got interested in studying this thing. And then, oh, FINA had a reorganization. And I was more or less independent executive in Norway. Then they brought in some man from Angola, (laughs) the head of exploration, and he resented my independence. Ah. Wanted to put screws on me and everything, and eventually they came to me and they said, "We're offering you early retirement." Wow! <laughs> so I had about six months with nothing to do there, till this period expired. Okay. And during that time, I studied this whole question of peak oil and mm-hmm. where it was and where it came from and everything. Oh yes, and I wrote this first book. The Golden Century of Oil. Mm. And at that time, I used oil and gas journal data. I had no reason to doubt it. So, yeah, I produced this book. Somebody published it for me, which looked at every country and made a preliminary analysis, but based on oil and gas journal. Well, this book somehow found its way to the Office of Petro Consultants in London. 
and he got interested in it and took it to Geneva where the head office was, showed it the ball, very interesting, yes, but he's using the wrong data. So they said, why don't you come and use our data? So I got invited by Petro Consultants. And, you know, these oil companies don't like to talk to each other too much. Right. But they do like to know what each other's doing and where right. the wells are drilling and how much was found and all that. Yeah. So Petro Consultants is a long-established company. He started in Cuba years ago, mm. then became international. And it was a funny old-fashioned company that deployed old-fashioned ex-oil men who scattered around the world and had their contacts and knowledge, and it was an entirely honest thing. Anyway, so they developed an honest, genuine database. Mm. Naturally, there are all sorts of doubts and uncertainties attached to this, but at least there was no trickery in that one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so they contacted me and said, well, we'd love you to do a similar study, but based on real data. And then Jean Larère had been working with them independently, and they put us both together, and we produced this mega-study so I begin to get access to valid information and could update the thing. The whole thing began to evolve in much more details and so on. Oh, and then I was asked to give a talk in Cyprus to some international group of oil companies. Petro Consultants asked me, and I gave this basically peak oil talk, and the oil executives <laughs> didn't like the story, naturally. And they approached Petro Consultants, when I gave a little handout at the conference, mm. they afterwards approached Petrick and Sons and said, God, if you do any more of this, we'll switch you off our list. Wow. So it was suppressed, and poor Petrick and Sons couldn't do any more. Wow. But in the meantime, I got friends in the oil companies and so on, and I had friends in Statoil, the state oil company of Norway. Right. And they were still getting the secret Petro Consultant State <laughs> it managed to come my way through various back doors. <laughs> mm, mm. So that, I guess, must have been sort of the genesis for the famous cover story that you co-authored with Jean Larere in yes. Scientific American in exactly. 1998, titled The End exactly. of Cheap Oil. Yeah, exactly. The End of Cheap Oil, exactly. And that... That was basically the basis of that article. So that report revived the interest in the concept of peak oil more than a decade after M.K. Hubbard, who had originated the idea, had, mm. had died. And my listeners learned about Hubbard way back in episode 13 in our conversation with Mason Inman, who wrote a biography of Hubbard titled The Oracle of Oil. Mm. And in that conversation, it became clear that Hubbard mostly fought an uphill battle in trying to get people to think about peak oil mm. and recognize what a challenge it would pose to humanity. In fact, we have a clip of him in the standard intro to this show where he's speaking about the exhaustion of resources and how we're unprepared for it. And there were a few brief periods, I think, when his ideas were taken seriously by the political establishment, but ultimately the oil and gas industry and its allies in government more or less drowned him out as new resources were discovered, production continued to increase, and oil prices remained low. And his views, I think, were considered to be discredited for a while yeah. and largely forgotten, at least until you and John revived interest in the subject. But I can't help but wonder now, about a decade after fracking became a commercial success and the production of unconventional oil has now allayed the fears of impending scarcity that certainly captured the interest of some observers a decade ago, if you don't feel a bit like Hubbard must have felt in his latter years, with many people having concluded that it was just a flash in the pan, a short-term panic that later evaporated, I mean, 
you made an enormous sacrifice of your time and energy to try to make people take the threat of peak oil seriously. And now only a few people who really understand the data on things like reserves to production ratios or discovery to production ratios and other fairly arcane subjects still take it seriously. I mean, you even helped found the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, or ASPO, which conducted numerous conferences and helped people who are interested in the subject really find each other and share research. But that's largely dwindled now as well, and the U.S. chapter formally closed down its doors a couple of years ago. So just looking back on this whole experience, a roughly 20-year arc of growing and then dwindling concern in the mind of the public anyway, I wonder what you make of it now. Well, as you say, the ASPO organization got going. I helped form it with the support of the German government, believe it or not. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And that's where it began. Huh. And we started having conferences. And this professor, Alaklet in Sweden. Right, Shell Alaklet. Yeah. Shell Alaklet. He took command of the thing. We had about 30 countries had ASPO organizations in them. And it grew and it was an interesting thing. And I wrote this newsletter for it. But then Alaklet retired. And the organization sort of lost its drive. Mm. But there's still members around the world following this subject in varying degrees. After the 100th edition of writing this newsletter, I'd had enough, so I retired. But as far as the general picture is concerned, I think one can say that easy cheap oil, this is part of the big problem, that there's no standard classification of right. the different categories. Right. So I recognize something called regular conventional and it peaked in 2005, and that triggered the oil price surge to $115 a barrel or whatever it was, 2008. Right. That in turn triggered an economic recession with the failure of many banks, and the whole thing began to unravel. But it also encouraged the turn to tight oil and heavy oil and all these extra more difficult, more costly, slower to produce resource in the ground is enormous of oil for fracking, but the wells have a short life. Yeah. They use almost as much energy as they deliver. Mm. And I think they'll go on producing for a long time and probably all around the world. And in the future, this may be the only source of oil there is because the conventional oil will have gone into total decline. Right. So... I've often wondered how much more growth we could get out of fracking. I'm not even sure where we're at now. I think maybe we got to be at, what, 6 million barrels a day, something in that? I don't know offhand what it is, but yeah. We won't get growth out of it, but it provide a basic essential need for a long time to come. The new importance, which is a subject we haven't covered, is the improved recovery by field. Oh, yeah. I mean, in my day, we used to think 30% or so would be what you'd get out of it. Right. Now they're up to 60%. Yeah. And so that was something I hadn't taken properly into account in these studies. So, so yeah, that's an interesting point. And I'm glad yeah. you brought it up because certainly skeptics of the peak oil concept would often make that point. They're like, yeah, but look at how low the recovery factors are. Yeah. What if we could just get those up a little more? Yeah. Certainly with fracking or with other enhanced oil yeah. recovery methods, we could increase that. Do you have any view on how much farther that might go? I don't know. I think 60, 70% or something. Well, it depends. You're not on shore field. You probably get it up to 90% by the time it's gone. Yeah, I suppose. But, but big offshore fields, they're too expensive to operate. And if the production is very low, it's losing money. Yeah. And so I don't think you can do it for the big offshore fields. And the big fields will be gone first, obviously. So we're only left with dribbles here and there. 
And it's already happening a bit, I think. Yeah. Disc well, considering how deeply we've gone into exploiting the Permian, you have to think that's going to be one yeah, of that's the almost highest what? recovery factors yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. But as you're well aware, the global depletion rate is sort of in the 4 million barrels a day range, I think. So every year the world loses approximately 4 million barrels a day of production capacity just through the decline of mature fields. So that has to be made up, right? Well, it won't be, so they would just have to face, face a contraction. Hmm. So looking at the future then, I wrote this book, the last book I wrote, The Atlas of Oil and Gas Depletion which covers the thing with graphs and everything. Oh, wow. This is a really very scholarly piece of work here. There's a lot of charts, a lot of data there. Yeah, absolutely. And the data was for 210, and I still managed to get the secret Petro Consultants <laughs> data through various back doors. There you go. And I managed to keep all these spreadsheets up and running. I try to update the spreadsheets on this. I have no more contact with anybody, really. I'm mm. now almost 88, and I can't do much more. And I had a shot the other day of trying to do it for the EIA data I've turned to use, which I don't suppose is accurate, but it's as good as you can get. Well, certainly on the tight oil production. Yes. Yeah. So I started trying to update the models. Right, look at Europe, boy. But I find it's sort of beyond me to do all these complex formulas and links between different spreadsheets. And yeah. Blah, 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 blah. yeah, yeah. So I've really run out of steam to do any more of all of this. But I've kept the model up as well as I could. And the big challenge facing people is to properly distinguish the different categories, what I call regular conventional, which is the easy old-fashioned stuff, the tight oil, heavy oil from Venezuela and other places, right. deep water polar fracking and then gas liquids and right and there's no formal classification of these things around and therefore the data you get everything is using talking about different things yeah so it's just a complete mess well i mean i think skeptics have questioned you know what is the importance of having these different classifications anyway i mean as long as it all goes in your tank and drives your car what difference well, does it make well if you're trying to model how much is there and the depletion profile you need to talk about the same stuff right and the easy cheap stuff peaked in 2005 and you gradually bought in more expensive more difficult things and deliver less and less at more and more cost oh and then I begin to realize some of the economic consequences of all of this. There's an interesting book by Mansur Khan, an Indian. Huh. And this book points out that it's energy, not money, that drives the world's economy. And so I come to realize the absolute significance of this subject because as the easy stuff goes down, then the price of oil goes up, it kills demand, demand kills oil profits, price falls, and the whole thing begins to unravel. Right. And we've seen examples of that sort of in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that prices stayed sort of in that $100 a barrel range yeah. between roughly 2008 and 2014, and then crashed. Yeah. And 
I don't think there was a really strong signal there that prices crashed in 2014 because demand had fallen off. But clearly, demand growth wasn't as strong as it had been. No. And I think we can assume that that had something to do with the price. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to this assertion you made that the peaking of conventional oil in 2005 sort of precipitated the financial crisis. I mean, that is not a connection that many people have been able to clearly make. Oh. And it's not super clear. And I just wonder, you know, what's well, your view of that? When oil price up at whatever it was, $150 well, think, a barrel, briefly, yeah, yeah. that just killed demand. And every business is looking to the future and investing in things, wanting to see future profits. And people began to lose faith in the, the thing. So they contracted, they sold off shares. They tried to save what they could before it collapsed. Mm. And so this triggered a right get back down to about the 30s. It was not long ago. Now it's edging up again to the 60s. Well, of course, the tricky part about that was that at least on the surface level, the financial crisis was really more about an excessive amount of speculative investment mm. derivatives related mm. to housing, right? Mm. And so I think people who are not super familiar with this will say, well, what does that have to do with oil? Mm. Well, as we said, it is energy, not money, that actually drives. All money does is give you access to energy to do things, to manufacture things, to transport things, mm. to run airlines, to build roads, whatever you do needs money. Oh, there's this lady, Gail Tverberg. Gail, oh, Gail Tverberg, yeah. Gail Tverberg. She's yeah. analyzing the link between money and energy. That's right. With a lot of very good graphs and things. That's right. Yeah, I know Gail. Uh, oh, do you? Yeah, her blog, Our Finite World, has certainly been yeah. well-respected. And yeah. I think James Hamilton has also done some interesting work uh, yes. relating energy and the economy. Yes, I think that's... You go to the wider aspects of all of this. My own view is that you look back at history, long history over time, and things grew a bit, and kings and barons, and mm -hmm. lots of battles between people in an expanding world, really. And then the discovery of coal and steam engines and so on. The discovery of steam engines was the turning point right. in about 1830, whenever that was. And then somebody found a way to put the fuel directly into the steam engine, and that started the internal combustion engine. And whew, that gave a great surge of new energy that stimulated the whole economy over the past century. Yeah. And this expanding thing, people got jealous of others, expansion went on, that prompted two world wars. True. Competing, I mean, the Germans wanted to rival the British Empire. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, they had immigration because they wanted to bring in cheap labor to keep down costs. Mm -hmm. And that's now getting more and more difficult to support and creates all sorts of tensions. So I think we enter a new cycle of dwindling energy based ultimately on the end of cheap, easy oil. Interesting. Well, yeah, I guess another interesting case in point here is that Japan's entry into World War II certainly had something mm. to do with being blocked off from access to oil supplies. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this whole thing is fascinating to observe. And I amuse myself writing down thoughts on this whole wider subject. Okay. And I write them down and it changes all along. And uh -huh. This is by no means academic because I pick up odd bits of things which are not properly checked and references and so on. So right. 
But the general idea of it is what's been amusing me, and I write it down, so I give you a copy. Well, thank you so much. This is really interesting. A Return to Regionalism is the title. Yeah. Now, that's a provocative concept right there. That's what I think is going to happen as this global trade begins to decline. People will again have to find that they have to survive on more or less whatever their district can support. So is the premise there that the lack of transportation fuel will yeah. sort of cause everything to shrink? Yeah, that's part of it. And then, you know, this whole manufacturing world in which we live and, and this investment business. I mean, people are investing. It's not real money. <laughs> Guesses and promises and all of this. And so the whole thing is it worked perfectly well in an expanding economy driven by easy oil. Now that you have no more cheap, easy oil, the thing's contracting, and the whole basic assumptions of everybody are beginning to change, and they're reluctant to face it. And right. So it's, I think we enter the second half of the oil age. <laughs> oh. The first half of the oil age saw expansion of everything over the last hundred years. And the population's grown, doubled or something in the last hundred years. Right. And I think we now face the exact opposite of population falling to match what is supportable. And you come back, here we live in this little village in the west of Ireland. Yeah. And the people smile here, there's no problems. There's enough potatoes being grown up the hills. <laughs> there's mm -hmm. some cattle around, people fish a bit. And Ireland's, that's an interesting example, because Ireland's population is now half what it was in 1850, when it was struck by the terrible potato, potato famine. famine that yeah. killed off half the people. Right. So Ireland's relatively well-placed, just having lots of land and, and a modest population. And really very decent prospects for being able to ultimately sustain itself energetically. Yes. Yeah. We had Eamon Ryan on the podcast oh, uh, did you? some time ago. Yeah. Oh, good. And he's a real energy geek, that guy. He's yes. a true nerd. I loved it. But yeah, he loved to talk us through all the different resources oh, and the renewables and how no. his vision of how Ireland could in fact be self-sustaining. Yes, I think it can. And well, it's interesting when they got independence, the first thing they did was build the Shannon hydroelectric plant. Because Ireland doesn't really have any, well, it has peat, but it doesn't have much else. Yeah. And so this hydroelectric plant was fortunately the right thing to build. Well, you've got abundant renewable resources in the form of yes. wind, and, wind and, and solar, hydro and some solar. And yeah. Ultimately, I think if we could get some of these marine technologies working, yes. there'd be a massive opportunity there. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. So I want to return to your experience of how the peak oil story has been received and then rejected in the public mm. mind. Is this a disappointing thing? I mean, it must be to see people just sort of have this yeah. sort of gut reaction to it and then sort of reject it and never really understand it. Well, I'm too old to really worry about anything these days, <laughs> so I don't mind. But I think there's still a large group of people around the world who recognize the nature of peak oil. And, well, I just discussed all this in that paper I gave you. Right. But this democratic government system you only get elected if you tell people what they want to hear. True. <laughs> and that's certainly not big oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. So it's a tricky thing for governments to face, but I think we're on the edge of another depression the size of the 1930 one, if not worse, yes. Okay. Based on the disappearance of... Cheap, easy energy. Cheap, easy energy. Yeah, yeah it's as simple as that.
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Harland & Wolf, the 158-year-old shipyard in Belfast, Ireland that built the Titanic, has been preparing for bankruptcy after the company that owned it, Dolphin Drilling, itself filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. The shipyard employed about 35,000 people in its pre-World War II heyday, but only has about 123 full-time employees today. It built its last ship in 2003 and has since concentrated on building renewable energy generators, including offshore wind and tidal turbines. In late July, the remaining workers seized control of the shipyard, blocking insolvency administrators from entering the site, demanding that the docks be nationalized and used to continue producing renewable energy infrastructure. Some cited U.S. House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal as their inspiration. As of this writing, the occupation is in its fourth week, and there is now hope that the shipyard can be saved, with several interested parties having put forward credible bids for the business. And that all bodes well for the future of wind and marine energy in Ireland. Item 2. The world's largest all-electric ferry, known as E-Ferry Ellen, has made its maiden voyage of 22 nautical miles between two islands in southern Denmark. The ship, capable of carrying 30 vehicles and 200 passengers, is 60 meters long and 30... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.